Hey there, this is Rob Long, talking to you from the streets of New York City, inviting you to Tuesday night, that's this coming Tuesday, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, a conversation with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. You know him as our COVID guru. He knows it all. Uh, we're calling this No Dumb Question. Please join us Tuesday, uh, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, members only. If you're not a member, this is a perfect time to join. Rob Long, wherever you are, turn your clock back this weekend. I have a dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its dream. I am not even first-generation American. When I joined the Marine Corps, I was still a Jamaican. But this country had done so much for me, I was willing, willing to die for this country. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson. Robin Long's out. I'm James Lalek. We've got the Hemingways, Mark and Molly, talking about the new book, Reagan. So let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, episode number 569. How did we get this far? Well, because of, well, like they say on public radio, people like you. Not necessarily you, but people like you who joined Ricochet and, uh, Kept us going forward into the future. You can do so. You can be a person like you if you're not already by going to ricochet.com, signing up. It is a mere pittance. And what do you get in exchange for it? Well, you get access to the most stimulating conversations and community on the web. Tired of Twitter, tired of Facebook. Aren't we all? Uh, join and find new friends at ricochet.com. I'm James Lilacs here in Minneapolis. Peter Robinson is in sunny California. Rob Long, who knows? He's in the wind, as they say. And, uh, you know, Peter was gone last week, and it was me and Rob. Uh, I, I, I seem to be the anchor, the glue that's holding this whole thing together here, Peter. In all uh, kinds of ways, you certainly are, James. <laughs> but I'll get out of the way and ask you a question. Did we just see a fundamental shift in the electorate that's going to change the map in 2022? I always love after there's an election where everybody starts drawing all kinds of conclusions. But it does seem as if there are conclusions that we can draw from what we saw in Virginia, Minnesota, Seattle, elsewhere. Um, we're going to be talking probably about Virginia or about, uh, yes, Virginia, New Jersey with our guests to come. So let's look at some other stuff elsewhere. How do you see what happened and why? And given that everybody's had a take on this that's quite stunningly obvious, it's up to you now to come up with something provocative and different. James, I'm sorry I missed that question because I'm monkeying around this new rig that Scott gave me. And for a second, <laughs> I hit a button by accident and you went silent. So I, I did heard that too once. Brand new mics. We have brand new mics, by the way. And I hit the mute button and spent 35 minutes trying to figure out how to get my thing back to go until <laughs> I saw this little button and said, okay. oh, fine. All right. So, so I heard you say, we'll talk about something else. Then you went blank. And then I heard you say, so it's up to you to say something <laughs> interesting. I'm and sorry. Also, so I'll, I'll, I'll just repeat my question. Um, everybody's ha everybody has the same take, pretty much, on what happened, uh, depending, right. depending on what side they belong to. The Democrats are saying, well, this is just proof that the Southern strategy is alive and well, that if you run on racism, you're going to win. Oh, and the right is saying, well, actually, no, there's a concatenation of issues out there that shows that the Democratic Party has moved a little bit too far to the left. They're sniffing their own fumes. They're high in their own supply. They don't realize that they're out of touch with what a lot of people want. 
Um, so I'm saying that kind of is what the obvious thing is. Come up with something new and novel and different to shatter the paradigm of all the chattering heads. Well, okay, I'll, I don't know that this shatters a paradigm, but here are a few thoughts that occur to me. And, of course, I want to hear what you have to say too, James. Um, the Biden presidency, the Biden administration is essentially over. Uh, they have a majority of seven in the House. There are at least 20 or 30 House Democrats who suddenly are in a position to say, no, I'm not voting for that stuff because I'd like to keep my job in the next election. In the Senate, 50-50, Kirsten Sinema comes from a state which is fairly evenly balanced, but the conservatives in Arizona are well organized. Um, she's not going to move to, she's, not, she's in a stronger position now to say, wait a minute, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, they can both say uh, Majority Leader Schumer, um, you've been telling us from the beginning that the Democratic Party was moving to the left, that the country was moving with them, and look what just happened in Virginia. The country moved toward us, not you. Now, sit down and take notes. Here's our new list of demands. The, 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 Joe Biden, one year into his presidency, has been rendered, well, not irrelevant. The President of the United States is never irrelevant. But the grand scheme of FDR2, of remaking the country, that's just gone. They'll get something through, but the grand scheme is over. How do they conclude that the country wanted full-strength progressivism, all of its form, when Bernie Sanders didn't win, when Elizabeth Warren didn't win, when the country turned its yearning eyes to Joe Biden because he was going to be a sleepy conveyor back to the old norms of civility, that, that, uh, that, that the firm hand of Joe would guide us back to a sane place. I mean, I don't know how they took that idea, but apparently they did. Um, so, yeah, but when you say that his presidency is uh, is moot or spent or the rest of it, we still right. do have three years of it. We it do. was interesting that we saw last week the uh, another one of these climate kabuki dances where everybody flies yes. in massive jets. Yes. Don't tell me you couldn't have zoomed that one, but they did. And they went there and came up with, with what? There's a big editorial in our paper today about how now is the time to act on climate. And the Republicans will probably fight progress by fighting all of the electrical vehicle mandates. And as somebody who is raising his hand at the moment saying, yeah, I'll help, part of the reason is this. It seems to me that in order to have electrical vehicles on the scale that they want, in order to forestall the flooding of Times Square in the next four or five years, uh, you have to have a grid that is capable of supporting all of that power. You have to have a robust infrastructure of charging stuff everywhere. Now, the president may say you can drive from one end of the country to the other on one tank of gas, meaning I don't know what he's meant. I but, exactly. but to have to scale up to what they want is going to require an awful lot of power at the same time that we are crimping and cramping and shutting down the energy supplies that we've come to use and, are, of course, forbidding nuclear power because it would make Jane Fonda a reporter character in a movie from the 1970s very unhappy if she did so. So it, I, I, if at a time when everybody's looking at prices going up, at gas going up, at food going up, to all of a sudden for him to go off there and start talking about what is to most people, in, in setting aside for the fact whether or not it is a dire existential concern, it is not to most people. Most people are concerned about the fact that, that beef went up a buck. And that's no small thing. And if you continue to swan the thousands, that's to, right. if you continue to say that you know th that these larger issues are the ones that we're going to have to talk about and scorn the people who do, you're not on Twitter as much as I am, which is why you are a sane and happy man. But were you were you aware of the milk discourse yesterday? On I Twitter? saw 
some a couple of I <clears throat> I did not spend much time on Twitter yesterday, but I made the mistake just before setting my head on the pillow to go. I checked it, and I thought something happened here. There was a, some little flap concerning milk of all things, and I don't understand what it was. So could you explain it to me? Well, they did a story. I think it was CNBC or MSNBC or one of those or somebody did a story on a large family. I think they got 11 kids. I think they right. adopted a whole bunch of them. And they go through about 10 or 12 gallons of milk a week. Right. And they were noting that the price has just gone way, way up, and it's, it's, it's tough on them. Now it's an added strain to pay for all the milk. Well, they were promptly set upon by the people. There, there's a group of Twitter people who love to show, without any sort of self-awareness, how amazingly out of touch that they are. They're questioning... The price of milk. Who drinks that much milk? So, you know, it, it, it's like when I can't remember who the Twitter was years ago said, uh, "I wonder how many people in the mainstream media know somebody who owns a pickup," and they just got furious about right. it. Right. 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 So right. within their world, these people who Ian Milhauser, who writes for I can't Vox or Vice or something or other, just a stonkingly ridiculous man wrote that, uh, yeah, I'm going to go to the uh, store and get my 12 gallons of milk and then take a bath and then, you know, talk about uh, QAnon and the rest of it. That's what they think, that they all of these uh, deplorable idiots out there bathing in milk, gargling with this stuff, frankly, forcing it down their kids with funnels and pouring it, glug, glug, glug. Not, I mean, it just shows that none of them seem to go to the store ever and note what everybody else right. is noting. Right. And so milk discourse, again, on Twitter, all of a sudden became a way of showing the people who say, yeah, there's something going on here that's affecting a lot of people. And the people who are just rolling their eyes, milk? Seriously? Um, and it's, it's, it's indicative because the bubble, the, 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 the people who are within it in these little isolated urban areas appear to think that they are setting the national conversation for everybody. And they have been. But they're not going to if their party wants to win. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's the that's the meaning. I have to say, I'm just I'm still in a wonderful mood about Virginia and um, and New Jersey. Uh, here's why: I just love democracy. We get this. People say, actually, no, we don't like being called racist. We don't like being told. And and, and furthermore, we're not racist. Many of us voted twice for an African-American to become president of the United States. And in the very self-same election in which Virginia turned down Terry McAuliffe and the Democrats, these putative white supremacists elected as lieutenant governor an African-American woman and a Hispanic as attorney general. The charge that these ordinary Americans of Virginia are somehow racist and white supremacist is preposterous on the very face of it. And uh, it's, it's just thrilling. The, be the best of all is the, the best race of all was the trucker in New Jersey who defeated the president of the New Jersey Senate by spending a total of $153 running against him. <laughs> just great. That's America. What yes, we don't is. realize, Peter, is that these people are simply white supremacy adjacent enablers that they right. have decided to throw their lot in with the corrupt systemic things that are systemically systemizing and gain power for themselves by doing so. They are not authentic. They are not authentic. In order to be authentically of one's cue, according to racial essentialism, you have to espouse a certain set of ideas. 
And also, when you said, I mean, you just proved Kendi's point that a hallmark of racism is denial of racism. Oh, the I more, see. the more you deny that it exists and is the dominant operating modus operandi in, in in the society today, the, the more you are revealing your own racism. So, I so mean, if Joe X, Joe X says he's a racist. He's a racist. And if Joe X says, "No, I'm not a racist," he's a racist. Right. That's the Kennedy position, correct? It's a wonderfully unfalsifiable, one-size-fits-absolutely-everybody position. So you can have the Lincoln Project, which is run by this guy who had a uh, cooler with a Confederate flag on it, um, coming up with the idea of the white supremacist standing outside with the tiki torches and the rest of it, which was patently false to anybody who looked at it. You had an incurious press who looked at this and said, oh, I'll just report this. It's got a you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, you had a, a, a confused group of people tweeting and retweeting this, not knowing whether or not they were in on the deal. And that somehow is not right, that, that, it, that it's operated by a guy with a Confederate flag in favor of candidates who themselves were in pictures with hoods and <laughs> adjacent to guys who had blackface on. Somehow, that's not racist. It may look so in the surface, but that's just a little thin veneer, and frankly, beneath it is all the wonderful progressivism that proves that their hearts are pure. But, the, but you're right, the candidate that actually has the woman who is an, African, an African-American uh, standing with a gun, looking serious in a full Harriet Tubman mode, uh, yes. uh, that, to vote for that is simply a, a, a chimera, a, a series of tricks that have been played upon us to actually make us feel comfortable with our own racism and tell lies to ourselves. It's really, really quite a trick. But it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. They may think that this is Penn and Teller level, uh, you know, uh, misdirection and uh, and handiwork. But it's 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 a three year old with a deck of cards, you know. I, Winsome Sears in one one interview after an, or another, I believe it was during election day before the results had come in. Winsome Sears is now the lieutenant governor elect of Virginia, and she. You're African-American. Why are you running as a Republican? And she launched into this beautiful set of remarks about how the Democratic Party has taken African-Americans for granted for decades, reduced them to a status, condescended to them over and over and over again. And then she said, go find another victim. Go find another victim. I practically leapt from my chair cheering to hear Ah, to hear an African-American woman who, within a matter of hours, was declared lieutenant governor-elect of the capital of the old Confederacy say, this is over. This is over. We're all Americans now. Let's move forward. Just thrilling. Just thrilling. And, and it infuriates people who find that she was demeaning victims. I mean, what she was doing was demeaning the idea of seeing everybody as victims. But, but no, what they hear was... You're demeaning the idea that there are victims out there. You're being contemptuous of them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting situation we've come down So here's to. what we've got, James. Here's mm-hmm. what we've got. We glimpsed, I don't know, what is there to say? Right up into, here's, here's in my judgment why the election of Tuesday, although only one state turned, there were, New Jersey came very close. That was a shock to the Democrats. Good for that. We got a change in power in Virginia. That's wonderful. Not much else. A few, oh, excuse me. 
uh, a defund the police effort was defeated where? In Seattle? Is that there was a, a ballot measure in some major city? Yeah, I think it was a, a place called Minneapolis. Mindy, oh, Mindy, it was right Mindy, there in Minneapolis? Minneapolis. Oh, well, tell us about that. How did that vote go? How did that come out? It was overwhelming, uh, it, wasn't it? Uh, it was pretty decisive. We decided, no, we're not going to replace the police department with a vaguely worded public safety committee or committee for public safety or something like that. Yeah, we can talk about that a little bit. And it later. wasn't even close, was it? Uh, it wasn't. No, it was. Uh, it was pretty decisive, and okay. all the usual excuses are being made. Uh, so, so all of a sudden, it. here's what comes to uh, this beautiful dream comes to my mind. All of a sudden, and it's not a dream; it's plausible. We take back the House next year. Donald Trump. This is the controversial part. Donald Trump announces that he's not going to seek the GOP nomination, but will campaign for the party. Even so, Youngkin and DeSantis and Cotton and Sass. And Josh Hawley, slug it out. Whoever wins the GOP nomination names, for example, Tim Scott or Nikki Haley as the running mate. They win in a landslide, and the republic is safe for another generation. Mm -hmm. Let's just hope All this has issue. suddenly become plausible. Huh. Let's just hope that the issue we're not running on is who lost Taiwan. Hey, i got to say something here before we get to our guests, and I'm going to do it brusquely because frankly rob isn't here so i don't have to dance around this i have, I have to do that <laughs> tiresome little thing where we pretend i'm doing the spot and he interrupts it and the rest of it no i need to tell you something about something that you probably have heard about because you go to a website and you don't want to be tracked right so you go into incognito mode we all know that's not enough it's not as incognito as you think no you know and really when you think about why would it be incognito mode well if you're using chrome the chrome browser it's a Google product, right? Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements online, figuring you are. There's even a $5 billion class action lawsuit at the moment against the company in California where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. Google's defense, <clears throat> quote, incognito does not mean invisible, end quote. You can see the smiling liar in Google's eyes. I say lawyers, liars patting themselves for that one. So question, how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? Well, you use ExpressVPN like we do. Turns out that even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked, and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. And one of those data points is your IP address. Now, data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. So you get some ads that pop up from place to place, and you hate that, don't you? It's like you're being followed where you are. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted to an encrypted server, and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers. And that means it is harder for third parties to identify you or to harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy, super easy to use. The configuration, oh my gosh, do I have to help my dad set this up? No, it doesn't matter. Whatever device you're on, your phone, your laptop, even your smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with a number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash ricochet and get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com slash ricochet. Go to expressvpn.com slash ricochet to learn more and get those three extra months for free. And we thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome back to the podcast, The Hemingways. It's like a sitcom pitch. He's a senior writer at Real Clear Investigations. She's a senior editor at The Federalist. Together, they solve crimes. She's also a contributor at Fox News, by the way. Mark and Molly Hemingway, surely one of the conservative media's favorite investigative couples. You're on Twitter. Oh, please be sure to follow the two of them, uh, at Herminator and at MZ Hemingway. Welcome back, guys. How are you today? 
Glad great. to be here, it's I guess. Great yeah, to be here great. with you. Well, Molly has a book, if I understand, and I know this is hard to do with authors sometimes, but if you could if you could tell us about the book, you know, what it's named and stuff like that. I think we're probably sick of it, but uh, so rigged, I believe. Now, yeah. hmm. Hmm, if only Rob Long were here to talk about this, because it has to do with the election and Trump, and we know that's Rob's favorite subject. But uh, l- let's pretend that Rob is here, and you're addressing him, and you're giving him the praises of the book and its central argument. Yeah, well, it it's a book on the 2020 election, Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections. And it came because after the 2020 election, you weren't supposed to talk about what happened, even though it was clearly the weirdest election that any of us had experienced in our lifetimes. Um, And it came after, you know, the weirdness of 2016, when the entire establishment, the entire media complex, all the Democrats and others participated in this crazy theory that Donald Trump had stolen the 2016 election by conspiring with Russia. Uh, They carried that on for years, special counsels, congressional investigations, daily drips of stories. But then once 2020 happened, you weren't supposed to talk about it at all. So I didn't like that, and I wanted to find out for myself what happened. And so I just reported on it and interviewed a ton of people at the national level, the RNC, the campaign, um, and also a bunch of state and local election lawyers and people who were involved in the disputes at the, at the state and local level. And I'm really glad I did because I found a bunch of you know, explosive, interesting stuff about how many hundreds of laws were changed in the 2020 election, how that was a coordinated campaign. Actually, one of the things I thought was so interesting is the guy who orchestrated the campaign to have chaos and confusion in our election laws is a guy named Mark Elias, and he's the same exact guy who orchestrated the 2016 election hoax, the, the Russia collusion thing. He, he's the one who secretly paid for the operation to come up with the lie that Donald Trump was a traitor who had colluded with Russia. And it's, he also was the guy who did the 2020 thing. So that was just like one of the interesting things that I found and how, you know, how much big tech was involved in controlling the outcome. And, you know, it turned out to be really interesting, and I'm really glad that I wrote it. And I'm really glad also that people are receiving it so well. So we're not talking about the theories out there that the Dominion routed its servers through Venezuelan cutouts and changed the laws and that uh, FedEx trucks backed up with secret ballots in the middle of the night and the rest of this. We're talking about how the ground was laid before and thumbs were put upon the scale. Right? Peter has a question about that. Well, no, uh, here, uh, here, here's um, Mitt Romney gave a statement, or I guess he wrote a piece in the Washington Post. Mitt Romney, Republican senator, and the argument in the post was th- the argument in his piece was that the Democrats ought to preserve the filibuster because who knows Donald Trump might even come back. Okay, so let me just quote Romney to you and the question, Mark, I'm coming to you. Don't d- don't get up for a cup of coffee. But at the moment we've got a book to talk about with Molly. I'm going to read a quotation from Romney and ask Molly, how do you respond? How do you how do you make Mitt Romney understand what actually happened? Romney writes. For several years, many of us have recoiled as foundational American institutions have been repeatedly demeaned. The judiciary has been accused of racial bias. The media maligned as the enemy of the people. Justice and intelligence agencies belittled. Public health agencies dismissed. Even our election system has been accused of being rigged. Now, since the title of your book is Rigged, 
it's difficult to um, resist the thought that Mitt Romney may even have you personally in mind. How do you reply? Uh, Mitt Romney, interesting guy. I think when people think about recoiling from something, they think about how he had so much of a role to play in the transformation of the Republican Party because people were alarmed when he didn't do a good enough job of defending Republican voters. He would be attacked as Hitler and murderous, and he would say, oh, you know, no big deal. I'll be a nice guy and let that go. And he didn't realize that in letting things like that go, he was not defending the party that he was supposed to be leading. Um, and I'm not sure what the larger point of his op-ed was in the Washington Post. I haven't gotten a chance to read it. But in fact, I think what we've seen in recent years on both left and right is a realization that the entire establishment is not very good at doing things, whether that's running wars or bailing out banks or handling the border. And they do look at a system that is entirely rigged. I like the term rigged because it refers to the structural systems. In right. Place. It's not stolen. It's rigged. Yeah. But I think for a lot of right-of-center voters, they, they look at, for instance, what happened to the FBI, an institution that they probably did have some level of confidence or trust in prior to about five years ago. I did, honestly. Yeah, and they, and they saw what happened and how they have one standard of prosecutorial approach, uh, one, one approach for political allies, an entirely opposite one for political opponents. Right. And they say this whole system is rigged. And, you know, but you also hear Bernie bros say stuff like that about, you know, financial systems. Uh, rather than just get mad at people for not believing in public health officials, even as public health officials contradict themselves, yes. maybe deal with the underlying problem, which is our election system was not uh, handled properly during the COVID year. It did have you know, floods of tens of millions of ballots, of mail-in ballots. That the, the system had never time. even attempted to handle that kind at, of mail-in traffic before. And, and that those changes happened at the same time that we were dropping scrutiny of mail-in ballots. You right. can't get mad at people for not trusting that. You have to deal with it and make it secure. You want to make it so people can vote fairly and have confidence in the outcome and just so dismissing I, their concerns. I, I, I just want to quickly jump in here and, and make uh, some points here. One is that a big part of the reason why this book was written was to look at the systemic structural problems with what happened last year and to partly steer the conversation away from some of the crazy stuff, right? Um, because, you know, the Venezuelan voting machine conspiracy and all that stuff was nonsense. But what was not nonsense is there are major problems that occur when you take, you know, tens of millions of people and force them to vote by mail when they've never voted by voted that way before and, and the way that that all goes down in terms of election security. I mean, like, those are major issues that we haven't really addressed. And the big problem that a lot of people on the right have is, is specifically with this Romney argument, which right. is we look around and we see all these institutions that are failing us and failing us in very big ways. And we know we need to fix these institutions, but any criticism of those institutions is an attack on the bedrock of American society as far as they're concerned. Right. And the reason why they view it that way is because a certain elitist technocrat, you know, liberal mindset, you know, which Romney, I'm, I'm afraid to say, I think falls distinctly in that camp, um, views that as an attack on sort of the power and control that they have over those institutions. And a big part of the problem is that the institutions themselves are representing uh, um, a group of people that aren't representative of the broader desires of the American people or serving them very well. So on Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney, I remember when he was 
running. He said in a number of interviews, I think he stopped because it was clear that his experience as a consultant for Bain wasn't helping him. But early on, he said over and over again that when he was at Bain, he loved taking what he called a data bath. He loved looking at the facts down to the smallest level. He's famous for deciding to fund Staples after he went around to uh, the secretaries in, uh, in his office and said, actually, this week, count how many paper clips you use. Let me know how many Staples you use, right? And so what Molly and Mark Hemingway say to Mitt Romney is, dude, read this book. It's a data bath. We've investigated, or not, it's, the book is by Molly. Molly oh, has actually, investigated. I wanted to this make sure that was clear. Mark is yes. essentially the co-author. He's like the unnamed co-author, but I, I note in the end of the book that he did so much on it. It's a long story. Anybody who knows the, w the way your marriage works, anybody who knows the two, actually anybody who knows either one of you knows both of you. Let's put it that way. So, so that's the, the argument is we've got the facts. Large numbers of laws and procedures across the country were changed. In one way or another, the, the pretext was COVID, but in one way or another, change after change after change advantaged the Democrats. This was done legally, by and large. It right. wasn't stolen in that sense. It wasn't accrued, um, but but it took place. It happened, and we've got the facts. Correct? Yes. Absolutely. And I, okay. Oftentimes, the scandal is what is legal, right? <laughs> and yes. that's you know largely one of the things that we were trying to address. But, but it's also true that a lot of it wasn't legal. I mean, the Constitution says that it's state legislatures that are supposed to, to handle their elections. Right. And in many cases, that's not what happened. There were large issues of illegal voting. We, we tell the story about what happened in Georgia, where more than 10,000 votes were in all likelihood illegally cast. The margin in Georgia was just over 10,000. Uh, another big issue that we look at, which the legality isn't totally settled, is that Mark Zuckerberg, one of the world's wealthiest and most powerful men, engineered a private takeover of government election offices. That's not resolved whether that was legal or not. It definitely was done for partisan aims. It had partisan results. It was not, you know, certainly not free or fair. Uh, to fund blue counties in swing states to affect the outcome of the elections in those swing states. And to say, you know, and this is like a totally legitimate thing to be upset about and to not think is okay. And we haven't even talked about the corruption of the media or big tech, which also played a huge role. May, may I add one more um, on the actual election itself? I certainly want to come to me. I know James wants to come to, to, to media. Can I read you, this is something Chris Christie said on this podcast what was it, James, three weeks ago when Chris Christie appeared with us? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a longish quotation, but I'd like to see how you reply to this. Let's face it. The president and his campaign blew it. I mean, you know, the idea that when you saw COVID coming in March of 2020, and this is part of the problem, the president never took COVID seriously in the beginning. And that not only manifested itself from, a, from the perspective of public policy, but it manifested itself politically as well. Because if you took it seriously, you'd know from March or April forward that there were going to have to be changes in those laws and that in some instances, Democrats were going to try to take advantage of that to change things in a way that had nothing to do with COVID but could help advantage them in the election. The president raised over $1.2 billion for his campaign. How much did we spend on the legal effort? Not much. We did not put together a top-notch legal team. The Democrats did. 
They outmaneuvered us. That's not stealing the election. That's strategic failure. And let's face it, this game is not for the faint of heart. And so, you know, there's, of course there was irregularities in the election, but there's irregularities in every American election. Molly, Mark. Okay, multiple thoughts on that. I don't entirely disagree and, in fact, tell the story of various failures that the Trump campaign had as, as part of their effort. But it's not entirely true. They actually had a lot of successes fighting Mark Elias's plans to water down election law. This election would have been very different had they not had those successes. They didn't have enough. The Republican National Committee had been barred from Election Day oversight and litigation for nearly 40 years, which is another one of these stories I tell in the book that I was shocked when I learned that they had been bound by a consent decree enforced by a New Jersey federal judge for 38 years. They were under this. It prohibited them from really doing the kind of litigation and oversight that you need to do as a national party. Um, They finally get out of it in 2018, and so they start litigating. But Christie is right that Democrats have very much funded this and very much worked on this. I think it's not just Trump's campaign and RNC fault, though. It's also Republican voters who only decided to care about this issue, like in November 2020, when they should have been caring about it for decades. The left has invested so much money, energy, time, thoughtful procedure. The whole way Mark Zuckerberg was able to bring in this army of left-wing vote activists is because they'd built an army of left-wing vote activists. Bringing them into the governmental system might have been wrong, illegal, unethical, but they had this army. Does the right? No. Maybe now they've got one. Um, So it's a large-scale problem for the entire right. It's really just – it's not an either-or in this case. I mean, Chrissy's absolutely right they got outmaneuvered, and he's absolutely right they should have invested more in this earlier. But that doesn't make what Democrats did do to outmaneuver them neither ethical or legal. So let me Um, me just ask you point blank on this because here's the charge that's going to be – already is being leveled against the book. Oh, Molly, Molly, Molly. And those of you who know you well will also be saying, oh, Mark, Mark, Mark. (laughs) another effort to say Trump really won. This is just a pro-Trump book. But as you're not saying that, you're saying Trump or no Trump, we have a problem here, and it has to be fixed. This is an institutional problem removed from Donald Trump. Correct? Well, think about what Democrats did immediately after the election. They start working on legislation to permanentize these changes and nationalize them. It's not because they care about the 2020 election. It's because they care about 2022 and 2024. And this is not just about 2020. This is about all elections going forward and also just like the country going forward. You can't have a republic if, if losers don't have confidence in the outcome of elections. Um, but I just want to say also, I don't think it's just about Trump. Like one of the big problems people have had in the last five years is making everything about him and not thinking about the voter. Like, I think about the voter who voted for Romney and felt poorly served by Romney. I think about the voters who supported the Republican in the last five years. And there's a reason why they reacted the way they did and continue to react the way they did to the election. It's not just about the election. It's about the entire system. It's about, you know, it's about what happened in 2016, the way the establishment responded to losing power. Um, And that's something that you're not going to have the media report. Honestly, they were part of the whole hoax after 2016. They were part of the shutdown of communication in 2020. They're not going to tell the story, but that story needs to be told. 
I the question's ba ba backed up like containers <laughs> outside the port. But, Mark, you're going to say something. So no, you, you go ahead. Well, I, there's so much here. I mean, you, Molly was talking about attempting to per make permanent these laws that were done before. Now, we all know that we had to change everything about voting in 2020 because if people went to vote in person, COVID would kill 97% of them. And it would, be, it would be hard to vote because there would be dead bodies you'd have to step over to get to the polling place. We didn't want that. So we had to change. And all of a sudden, that new paradigm became the permanent good thing, and that any attempt the Republicans made to go after it afterwards was disenfranchising people, because nobody remembers what happened yesterday, and everything flips, and the world starts and resets anew, which is crazy. When you mention Zuckerberg, it is, I mean, it, the, the, and I want to hear a little bit more about what he did, because this story isn't much known. This comes as a total shock and a paradigm breaker in the left's brains, because Zuckerberg is the man who made right-wing algorithm hate speech possible through Facebook. They view him as the absolute enemy of everything. And the media, which you were ending up, which I really want to get to, is frustrating for a lot of us because we know that people do not marinate in this as we do. And frankly, they, if, they, if they listen to the news at all, it's, you know, it's a, the best way to make sure that at least that you get the headlines is to, is to turn on some source of news that you trust and look at it and read it for at least two minutes, which is the duration that you have when you're brushing your teeth with a quip toothbrush. Let me tell you about quip, though. Yes, the two-minute quip habit. I have it. I'm glad I do because good health starts with good habits. And quip makes it easy. They deliver all the oral care essentials you need to care for your mouth. The quip electric toothbrush is loved by over 7 million mouths. I'm one of them, and it has, are you ready for this? Timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses to guide a dentist-recommended two-minute clean. A lightweight and sleek design for adults and kids with no wires, no bulky charger to weigh you down. A multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter. And I save that and I use that when I travel. And reusable handles and a range of sleek metal hues. They look cool. I like that. Including the best-selling all-black and the all-pink. As well as bright plastic colors that make sure that they'll pop on your bathroom counter. Okay, anything else on top of your brushing? Why, yes, you can upgrade your quip with a new smart motor to track and improve your brushing, make your brushing even better. How with the, the, the free quip app? And it's not just learning better brushing, but you earn amazing rewards like free refills and products and target gift cards and more with the motor in the app. It's amazing. Go to quip.com to find out about that. And in addition to these brush heads, Quip also delivers fresh floss, toothpaste, mouthwash, and gum refills every three months from $5, starting at $5, and shipping is free. So you can save money and skip the hustle and bustle of in-store shopping. With stylish and affordable electric brushes starting at just $25, you will not be paying through the teeth for better oral health. If you go to getquip.com slash ricochet right now, you'll get your first refill free. That is your first refill free at getquip.com slash ricochet. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash ricochet. Quip, the good habits company. And we thank Quip for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. So from that big banquet of questions that I just said before you, let, let's, let's talk about the media. Because, again, if Rob were here, he would roll his eyes. He's so tired about talking about how the media tends to massage things. But we really did have a four-year concerted effort with the Russia thing. And then we had what came after that. Explain the, the, the media's role in it being rigged, because I'm sort of in the mainstream media myself, and I see what does and does not happen. Well, it's interesting because this week we had the uh, arrest and charging of one of the participants in the Russia collusion hoax, the lie that Donald Trump was plotting to steal the election or had stolen the election. Uh, that investigation that, that John Durham is doing is focused on malfeasance by 
political actors hired by the Clinton campaign, the people who will probably get away with their participation in it the most might be the FBI, but also the corporate media. Nothing would have happened if these media people had behaved responsibly. They did not, and they, their punishment for participating in what was pretty obviously a delusional lie was that they received Pulitzers and other prominent mm -hmm. awards. They got promotions. Uh, well, let me stop you. Faced with what was coming out, what would have been the responsible thing for them to do? I mean, if the FBI or it comes out and somebody gives you this big, juicy leak about what Russia did, uh, comprimat have they have on them, are they not obligated at least to talk about the story that's, that, uh, that's being talked about? I know that's part of the dodge. Like, people are talking about it, so we have to report what people are talking about. And then the New York Times saying this is what people are talking about legitimizes somehow what they're talking about. I get that. But what, what, was, what were they supposed to do when faced with the stuff that was coming? Well, out? what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to, like, run down the allegations and determine whether or not they were true before they reported them. Oh, Mark, come on. That's so much work. you got you, you <laughs> to call people to for, for instance, the Steele dossier um, you know, was reported on a few times before the election, and it didn't really break through, but it really broke through in January of 2017 when CNN has this big story with four bylines on it, including Jake Tapper and Carl Bernstein himself, um, you know, reporting that Trump and President Obama were briefed on this dossier, right? But they, they go through and they report on this dossier like it's this sinister thing that's like so important that the president and the president-elect were both briefed on it without verifying any of the details in the dossier. And like this had been circulating on DC for months. And the reason why it hadn't been reported on to that point was because anyone who looked at it knew that it was a laughable it was document. Garbage right? on the face yeah, of and it, the right? idea that CNN right. would report on this meeting as being so significant without providing any context or background on the document itself, which they surely had in their possession, is an absolute outrage and was a complete and total, you know, uh, abdication of journalistic responsibility. But more than that, I think it was the active participation in an operation against the incoming president of the United States. So and th that is a huge I problem. So I just want to add one thing. Which sure, is sure, sure. Go, yesterday, go. the Washington Post, when they reported on that Durham indictment uh, that dropped against the main source for the Steele dossier, includes the line, and I'm going to read this to you. The allegations cast new uncertainty on some past reporting on the dossier by news organizations, including the Washington Post. That's just like a throwaway line in the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, are new you New uncertainty me? on some reporting. It was an outrage. Uh, so here's here's my question for I guess this is I ask a question to one of you and you can uh, I'll take it anyway whoever wants it but Molly said they all fell down on their job that's the piece that I don't understand in the old days you would have had a Cy Hirsch who's still around in, the, in his 80s now but a Cy Hirsch card-carrying liberal of the old school but if he saw the media pack going in one direction, he instinctively moved in the other. Matt so, Tabby, where are the where are the reporters with a nose for a story? Everybody's getting it wrong. I'll get it. Where are the, what happened here? I was being exist. I was being hyperbolic because there were almost no reporters who did a good job. But as one of the reporters who immediately and regularly fought this false narrative, beginning my first piece was was in October of 2016, which was on uh, the day after there was a coordinated Clinton campaign drop of Russia propaganda, uh, of their own Russia propaganda. Um, there were about 10 of us, I'd say, who did really good work. And what's interesting about the 10 is that they're not all right of center 
Uh, some of them were left of center journalists, Glenn Greenwald. Glenn Greenwald, Steve. right. Um, and the one thing that does seem to unite a lot of us is that we developed our skepticism of, in, of intelligence community leaks from the Iraq war. So if you recall that when that happened, that there was all that, that the intelligence community claimed they had airtight intelligence about curveball, this source who was airtight about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And then it turned out it was like a, a German source who wasn't airtight and had completely invented it. The media said, we will never let this happen again. This was embarrassing. We helped participate in a march for war because we believed credulously the intelligence community. But they apparently didn't mean it because by 2016, they are just taking whatever they can get right, from right, totally right. compromised IC sources and just regurgitating it, even though it was laughable on its face. Like it was an intelligence test, whether you believed this mm -hmm. stupid dossier or not. And yet most people failed it. I think it's what Mark said that they were so happy to participate in uh, a fight against democracy that they wanted to do it, but it's also possible they were just okay. Too. So, so can can I can I? I'm sorry. I, I just want to set up one more question, and then James, over to you. But it now appears clear, really undeniable, that this whole thing traces right back to the Clinton campaign, and that the Russian collusion, which tied this country in knots for three years, was a political dirty trick. And it makes anything that Richard Nixon did look like the merest trifle. The merest trifle. Now contrast the two situations. You just said that the 10 of you who were skeptical of the intel community earned your skepticism by paying attention to Iraq. Well, go back to the 70s. The whole press corps was skeptical of the government because of Vietnam. The uh. same thing had happened. Yes, Watergate comes along, and they all pile, in, and careers are made. Woodward and Bernstein have been rich and famous men all their lives because of Watergate. And it's only 10 of you? Well, but, that's, that's okay. because in the 70s, that's, the establishment was not perceived as, and in, in many crucial ways, was not liberal. I mean, the uh, journalistic establishment is on the same ideological page, you know, 40 years later, as the people running the country. And, and that's the big, big difference. I mean, you need an adversarial press, you know, ideologically. And, and when, you start, when you start thinking about that in terms of everyone being on the same ideological page, once, once you accept the notion that the, you know, main, sort of the, the corporate press, the Beltway press, if you accept the notion that they see their highest responsibilities determining the outcome of, you know, America's major elections, then everything else that they do makes perfect sense. I mean, that's basically where we are in this country. I mean, if you look at what happened, for instance, um, between 2016 and 2020, one of this we talk about a lot about a lot about this in the book. One of the major developments in that interregnum was the total acceptance and cheerleading of by the by the corporate press of censorship, and I mean widespread yes, censorship, yes. like unthinkable that, 20 years ago. It was totally insane. It wasn't even thinkable in the fall of, of November 2016. Right. I mean, when Trump got elected, there were immediately everyone immediately turned to look for a bl to assign blame. And they blamed two people, basically. They blamed the Russians, and then they blamed Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg's initial reaction to being blamed for, for Donald Trump's election was, you know, he was like, this is preposterous. But you know what? His own employees, which are liberal Silicon Valley employees, were all revolting. And by, you know what happened? By December of 2016, Facebook announces the creation of this fact-checking program, right? 
um, that all of a sudden, if one of Facebook's fact-checking partners, which, by the way, are a bunch of corporate media outlets, determines an outlet is uh, determines a news story is false or misinformation or whatever it is, um, that means, according to Facebook's own press releases, that when one of USA Today's fact-checker or PolitiFact, you know, says this is false, um, they go into the back end of Facebook. And they, they, they put in the link that they say is false, and Facebook brags that they kill 80% of the global Internet traffic to that story. And that was their response to the 2016 election. We spent a year before the election saying that the lab leak hypothesis was a racist conspiracy, and you couldn't discuss it on an Internet platform that 3 billion people use monthly because basically that narrative helped Donald Trump. It doesn't matter the preponderance of evidence always was and is now accepted as, you know, the most likely origin of the greatest news story that we've experienced in a generation. Um, that's the kind of control that they are willing to exert simply to determine the outcome of an election. Yeah, when I was a DC journalist in the Beltway back in the 90s, the idea that we would actively work towards these things was preposterous because we still held to old notions that we thought held our industry aloft. But the more I listen to the people who are coming into the industry now, the more I hear this constant, constant insistence that objectivity is actually a tool for empowering the bad people. That to pretend that there are both sides to an issue is to, is, is, is to utter a lie. There aren't. There's the good and there's the bad. And I, I, we had a, a broken a little small groups at one of our diversity meetings at work the other day via Zoom, and we're discussing the idea. The old-line journalists who are old-style liberals, you go to work listening to the National Public Radio and regard the New York Times and the Washington Post as essentially truthful operations, regard the idea of abandoning objectivity as madness because they still think that it's one of the bulwarks that stand, not that bulwark, one of the bulwarks that stands between us and complete inability to determine what the truth is. But you're right. I mean, I don't care who's saying the truth if it is the truth. Glenn Greenwald is somebody I, dis I disagreed with for years until now I find myself agreeing with him. Is it because I have changed somehow or he's become a tool of the Trump, the Trumpy right and the rest of it? No. It's because he maintained a skepticism towards the intelligence community and the instruments of government, which he always believed were there to do nefarious things and not further the interests of the American people. So now here we are on the right, all looking at these institutions that we grew up with. We watched the FBI on television with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. We believe the CIA is actually out there in the field doing work to keep us safe. We believe that the CDC was cold-hearted and logical and empirical. We believed in all of these institutions. We granted them their mistakes because of human failings. But now we find that because they've been captured by the left, the left will defend to the death everything about the establishment that they castigated when they were out of power. So it turns out it's not about ideas. It's just about power. What a surprise that is. Never seen that happen before I when the left uh, Do you think we should country. remember that Watergate itself was an example of a malicious and insufficient leak from an intelligence community operative, Mark Feltz, who was number mm -hmm. two at FBI, I think. He was upset that he hadn't been given the position of FBI director, and so he leaked. And there were all sorts of other examples from the reporting of Watergate that are very much less favorable than the conventional all the president's men narrative, including violations of due process, uh, violations of the grand jury secrecy you know there were a lot of things that are actually kind of similar to some of the Russiagate reporting and I mean that in a bad way um, it wasn't as I know we I know we all have like a favorable impression of it but if you read and the Nixon library has great stuff on this actually and very fair 
balanced stuff about how journalism, that was not its brightest day either. So how do we get back? How do we get back to the point where both sides have a reasonable amount of, of, of faith in their institutions? Is it possible? Or is it just going to be a back-and-forth battle between whatever? I, I think it's kind of already happening. I mean, there was a story I saw this morning that CNN did not average a single program that had more than a million viewers for the entire month of October. Oh, that's as, that's as ha- I, that makes me just as happy as Youngkin's election this week. That's great. People are rejecting this, you know, um, corporate media narrative and sort of a lot of these, you know, outlets that exist to sort of control the narrative because they sense that it's happening. Um, You know, about a week ago, I drove out to um, uh, this house in the middle of the woods that's in the border of West Virginia and Maryland. And I did a podcast at 400, a live YouTube show that something like 423,000 people watched. I mean, you know, this is a guy in his house, you know, in the middle of the woods. Um, we now have the technology programs, you know, outlets, platforms like Ricochet. Um, you know, these things are growing, and uh, they are supplant. They're going to supplant a lot of the mainstream, you know, narrative that you're, you're seeing. Now, we still have obviously a problem that we need to deal with, and I'm sure my wife's about to jump in and correct my optimism. <laughs> Yeah, no, I would say there are many good things. One of the best things is that, at least for the right portion of the country, they no longer believe corporate media. I mean, the most recent Gallup poll showed that, like, 75% of Democrats love how the media portray them. 9% of Republicans do. 9% of Republicans have confidence in the media to accurately convey information. That's a good first step. I think the leadership also needs to, like so long as Mitt Romney thinks running to the Washington Post to help the left with its messaging is a good role for him as a Republican senator, you've got to, you're going to have Republican voters feeling like their leaders need to wake up to the situation where corporate media are the most powerful, unaccountable political actors in our country, and they must be stopped. They don't get to, they don't get to moderate debates anymore. They participated so, in the Russia hoax. So, they can't do it anymore. So well, I, if I can just say, of also, course. we need to see much more funding of non-leftist media sources like the Washington Post and New York Times, these people who control narratives and make up stories and push false stories. But, but, but you're, not, to revisit. you're not arguing that we should have more billionaire sugar daddies for our side. Um, so right now when you think – like I remember – don't, don't we want to grope toward a business model where our side can be profitable again and freestanding okay. news organizations? Let's, let's deal with the reality. Oh, Donald that's Trump never as says, much fun. Donald Trump said in August that the Atlantic Monthly was failing, and it is true that they lose like 10 to $20 million a year. They also are a bargain for their leftist donors, Steve Jobs' widow – because they control outcomes of elections. They made up a major story in the 2020 election. That was the false Ayn Marne story, that Donald Trump didn't actually love the pomp and circumstance of military rights. He secretly hated it, all these people. That story was made up. It had anonymous sources that nobody ever you know, could verify. Uh, it was disputed by 20-some on-the-record sources, including John Bolton, not exactly not someone fan. who wants to help out Donald Trump. It gets asked about in a debate. You know, it, it, it controls outcomes. They're losing tens of millions of dollars, but it's, it's a small price to pay. Do I think that in our current model where Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, which has no viewers, MSNBC, get nothing but major corporate advertising while right of center outlets don't, is that like a is that an equal situation? And, and they not, not only don't get that advertising, they get boycotted and they get you know um, deplatformed. 
So um, I think the I think the right actually does need to understand that it's not sufficient to not respect these media outlets. They need competing news gathering operations that can hold people accountable, that can pull the halls of Congress and ask tough questions of members of Congress, senators that can push their own, you know, their own news okay. and not just be reactive to other people. We need our own. So, so two ways these might emerge. Way number one, Mark, Molly, Peter and James go from billionaire to billionaire to billionaire with tin cup in hand saying we've got a terrific idea, but we need you to fund it Two, a model emerges over the next few years. Maybe it's Substack. Maybe it's the guy out in the woods who who interviewed Mark the other day. My interview with Jay Bhattacharya of two weeks ago now has 250,000 views on YouTube, which is not it's not Tucker. It's not three million. But, you know, it's not nothing for a guy for a guy who's talking back to to Anthony Fauci. So somehow or other organically because people want the truth people want good journalism this stuff will emerge we will find a way or we need rich sugar daddies <laughs> i'm sorry we haven't even talked about the fact that youtube is only currently permitting you to host something there that's true they could change yep. their mind tomorrow yep. they've actually deplatformed tons of people they yanked there an interview is, i did with scott atlas they took it down for two weeks they major league censor and deplatform any effective voice that they don't like. They have their own sort of like, oh, you're okay, you're not causing too much trouble sort of standard. The moment you actually uh, address like a truly contentious issue, they decide that you don't have the right to speak. This war on freedom of information does require political power, financial power, and grassroots support. And to that end, I think your hopefulness about an alternative model thriving might be the best argument. I was going to say, and a competing infrastructure, too, because who knows what can arise. Can build right. your own Internet, James. Well, not my – yes, not build your own Internet, but build your own servers, build your own, you know, structure right. so that you can't be shut down by these guys. And every – you know, I know that every one of these things that comes up in response to ends up being a cesspool, and that's a problem. But, I'm, I mean, yes, YouTube is the dominant paradigm right now, but we know how fast that these things can change. Here's the thing. We are, you know, we would love to go on for 90 minutes, two hours, three hours, but we're sick and tired of you two guys agreeing on stuff. What we want is a fight. We want your fight of the week. <laughs> That's the oh, most that pathetic sound. sounder I've ever seen. That's <laughs> not for a major league prize fight. That's two, you know, small little people coming out and slapping each other with tiny macros. All right. We'll get a better bell in the future, but right now, <laughs> tiny ding, bell. fight. Go, hun. So, go, hun. <laughs> oh, that's a good way to start a fight. Backstory to this, of course, is that, uh, you know, Molly and I used to do a podcast together on the Ricochet platform or whatever. And, and the most popular thing about that podcast where we discuss current events and all these other things, which, you know, I thought we did an okay job of, but far and away the most popular thing was we would do this thing called Fight of the Week where we'd talk about some t silly thing that we – you, we would argue about um, in our, you know, basically day-to-day, -day, you know, lives as a married couple. And it was, it was always, like, insane things. I remember the classic argument that, that I remember everyone getting really excited about was I always used to use hand sanitizer. My wife was convinced that I should be, like, washing my hands with soap and water because that was so much better. And it I'm turns afraid. out that there's, like, this amazing body of literature on both sides. Like, this fight has been, like, raging in the medical community for <laughs> forever. 
Um, but uh, um, so, you know, Here's we like actually. She's about to tell you you're wrong, Mark. Right. He is wrong. But uh, the really bad news for this portion is that we haven't been fighting much, although we did recently fight about. We fight a lot about fish. Uh, fish seems to be a really contentious thing in our How household. to cook it or which fishes are admirable? What What do you mean you fight about fish? Um, I could understand fighting with fish, slapping it, each other it, with mackerels, it, as James it, it, the problem. The problem is it's, our, its presence in our house in any form, more or less. Ah. So something weird happened. My wife did not used to be this way, but we got married, and we, we got married in September. We had a child the following August, so that all happened very quickly. Um, but the moment my wife got pregnant, she immediately got extremely nauseous, and she developed this like bionic smelling like it was crazy like she wasn't that way before but like i would be downstairs in 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 the house and i would open the refrigerator door and my wife would scream from the upstairs bedroom what's that smell <laughs> um and this is like proceeded ever since then and and so of course her version of this is that i can't smell anything um which right. is somewhat true i don't think it's that i can't smell things it's that over the years and doing various things i spent a summer working at a porta potty place um, and I have stories involving, let's say, elbow length gloves that I won't share with your listeners today. Oh, but um, suffice to say, elbow. I have trained myself over the years. Um, I don't know. My dad was a Marine Colonel, right, and combat veteran, and all these things. Like incredibly practical man, and like I've always trained myself to be like incredibly stoic about any sort of you know discomfort See, or we, other we things work, like that. We work in our home. It's not a large home. He stinks the place up with like the most foul smelling fish and then it like just kind of sticks around in a way that's really not conducive to work and you know i'm also a big fan go. of like say organ meat like i will cook oh. i'll go in and like fry up oh, like, no 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 i just livers. moved over to molly's okay. side i <laughs> so was I. with you right. but i just switched sides as we all know everything you spray in the air doesn't work right it's just a bunch of droplets that mask what's there and then the droplets fall to the floor the one thing you need besides opening the window occasionally and not cooking so much fish is something called ozium which actually as every guy in a dorm in 1978 will tell you, is really good at masking any kind of smell. It's good. It just somehow charges the air and makes a difference. So, Mark, buy Ozium, Ozium. and oh. you will be fine. Um, and now we I have thought to this was go. an ad, so I was like really... I know. No, it's not an ad. For once, that wasn't a segue. It's just a personal... It's Maybe a personal it should be an ad. If Mark, anyone thinks Ozium yeah. is listening. As so James, be, right. Just before James closes, I have bad news for you, Mark. Yeah. Our last child, our youngest child, was born 19 years ago. The other day, I'm down the hall, and I hear, close the closet door. Well, I'm getting a coat. What? Why should you? I can smell the mothballs. Yep. Mark, it doesn't go away. It doesn't no. end. It and my doesn't. wife has the same thing. Women have, women, I'm told, have a superior sense of smell because they have to determine in the lair, you know, if something's rotten or bad with the rest of it. And I say, that's fine change. That's, or that's, that's great. Women are good at that. Men are better at direction. We are instinctively attuned to magnetic fields and the points of the compass because we have to go out, find things, kill them, and bring them home. Somehow that's sexist. Somehow saying that men are good at directions is sexist. But women are great well at i hate to break things. it to you but um my wife is far better directions than i am so all right mark well you just climb back in your little <laughs> you smell bad and you get lost in the woods this is not okay. good mark well you know who wears actually i'm very good at directions in the woods it's driving is the issue <laughs> it's just um, a problem that we don't find ourselves in the woods as often as we would like to but uh, yes exactly it comes out. that's my problem well, all right. Well, then join the uh, New Jersey Mafia and end up out in the Pine Barrens disposing of a corpse, and we'll see exactly how good your directions are. Mark and Molly Hemingway, it's been a great pleasure. The book is rigged. You can buy it on Amazon for now. 
And uh, thanks, guys, for coming on. We missed you. And thanks, and give Rob our love. We yeah. will. We will. Oh, we so will good in, to see you again. But not probably in the forms that you intend, because you know I'm not going to kiss him on the cheek or anything. I'll, I'll give his hand a manly shake. <laughs> It'll do. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you. I cook, cooked fish yesterday, and uh, it was okay. Uh, I had to do it in a toaster oven because our real oven broke, and we can't get one for months because of supply chain issues. It's just wow. a real big pain. I know. No Thanksgiving because of it. Nightmare. I asked when I could get my dual fuel, and they said, March. I have one coming in a couple of weeks. That'll be great, and then I'll cook some fish again and stink up the whole place. But here's the thing. The fish that I cooked yesterday was okay, but it wasn't restaurant quality. Why? Well, aside from my own lack of skills, it's a matter of tools. Restaurants have access to the right kitchen tools. Made in, M-A-D-E-I-N. They make professional quality cookware and kitchenware that anybody is capable of using to make restaurant quality food at home. Made in produces professional quality cookware for those who love to cook. They source the finest materials, goes without saying, and partner with renowned craftsmen to make premium kitchen tools that are available only to you, frankly, without the markup. Made-in products are made to last, and they offer a lifetime guarantee. The cookware distributes heat evenly, so you don't have those little spots that something's cold and something's not, something's burnt and something's not. You can easily go from stovetop to the oven. They have 40,000-plus five-star reviews, and their products are used by some of the world's best chefs at the Michelin-starred restaurants around the world. Made-in. Better cookware for better meals. Just on Ricochet the other day, somebody was saying, what was that company? i got to know because I need a pan, and this was the one, and I hear the best things about it. And we had to tell them it was made in. And the good thing is for Ricochet listeners, which are you, you get a discount. 15% off your first order with the promo code Ricochet. Best discount available anywhere online, really, for made-in products. Go to madeincookware.com slash ricochet and use the promo code Ricochet for 15% off your first order. That's madeincookware.com slash ricochet, promo code ricochet. And we thank Maiden for sponsoring this Ricochet podcast. Well, Peter, here we are ending up here. And, uh, you know, any sort of stuff we talk about the daily election and the rest of it, it'll be, it'll be gone and boring by the time people get around to the podcast. So there has to be something timely like uh, the World Series. I didn't follow it. I'm frankly not a baseball guy. And oh, I suspect really? That, I suspect that you are sort of in the George Willish sense as well. Um, I so am ordinarily, but I was traveling through, and, and I missed the whole darn series. I think that may be the first time in my life since the age of seven that I mm. ne- didn't even watch one game in the World Series. I'm really sorry to say. I'm delighted that the Braves won. Um, uh, not actually even sure why. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, there's a political reason I'm delighted the Braves won, because it wasn't that the, the baseball commissioner attacked them. No, he refused them. He refused some to prevent some playoff series to take place in Atlanta because Georgia had, because of Georgia's election laws or some screwball. Anyway, God bless the Braves for winning. But may I ask you, James, mm-hmm. little boy, North Dakota. Yes. Daylight savings time. Something oh. tells me that you being you, you'll be able to tell a wonderful story on that prompt. Well, just that there, when you've had a long, dark, cold winter as you had in North Dakota, and I mean cold. I mean, the wind would come down from Canada with no trees between us and the border, and it was cold, and the snow was piled up. I have pictures of the snow piled up to the rafters to the eaves. You know, it happened one year, but you take that as the standard for the rest of the years going forward. But after you have endured that, when you spring forward, and all of a sudden the summer nights attenuate longer and longer every day until you have those glorious periods in the middle of the summer where it's 9.30 and it's still light. Right. There may be a sort of fading and crepuscular 
but it's still light and it's still there. And we worship and enjoy that so much that we're willing to pay for the horrible thing that happens in November when we're kicked into the cellar and the door is shut and bolted behind us and we have to fall back. Um, and all of a sudden it's dark. It's just dark. And I don't mind. I don't mind the fact that it's dark at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. First of all, people used to complain. I hate driving home at 5 o'clock when it's dark. Well, you're not driving home anymore, are you? Because nobody goes to the office to stop complaining. <laughs> I liked it because the darker and colder it was at that one point when it gets to that day where it's the shortest day ever, from that you climb out and eventually find your way back to the glorious days of the summer. So I don't mind it at all. Now, if they say that this is some unnatural imposition upon time, yeah, okay, you're right. You know, yes, the Earth goes around it at a set amount of time. It goes around the sun at sets set amount of time, hours, minutes, the rest of that. That's arbitrary. I get that. But if you want to stop going back and forth, back and forth, and some are saying, oh, it's bad for people's health. It gets them off the schedule. Yeah, it gives them an excuse to miss church. If you want to do that, fine. But don't set the clocks so that summer nights are short. That is the argument that I cannot accept, and I, I, and I, and, and, and I won't. The idea somehow that we will arrange things now so that no child will ever be able to run around and catch fireflies in a bottle at 9 o'clock, 9.30 on a summer night is wrong. The idea that the sun should set at 7.10 in August is wrong. So I will fight that position. So this is interesting. Standard time, if I, if, if I may offer the shorter lilacs, Standard time Please do, builds, because somebody out there. Standard time builds character, mm -hmm. but daylight savings time enhances imagination. A combination of the, the way it is right now is fine. The way it is right up here now is fine. And five when it gets dark at five o'clock, that builds character. When you're able to enjoy the you know the the, 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 the summer pleasures late, that builds a different kind of character. Not the kind where you bear down and stare manfully into the future and resolve to do what needs to be done because it's cold and dark, but the character that takes some sort of mystical joy in the strange gift of a summer evening. They're both building character. That's why we have such excellent character up here in Minnesota, Peter. <coughs> well, Franklin. So um, I, I hope that uh, people are you know, listening to this podcast and nodding with agreement with me because I am correct emotionally and empirically. All right. You know what? This podcast was brought to you by Rob Long because he was one of the founders of Ricochet. I'm just kidding. Well, sort of, kind of. Brought to you by ExpressVPN, by Quip, and by Mayday. Support them for supporting us, but, you know, you get a lot of great stuff in the, in the deal if you do. And join Ricochet today, will you? We're going to have to drag Rob back here for another one of his beloved member pitches. Don't make us do it. Take a minute, if you will, 30 seconds, 15 to leave a five-star review. Five seconds to leave a five-star review. One second for each click on the Apple Podcast. The reviews... Well, they help new people find their show and discover us and keep Ricochet going into the future of the foreseeable and beyond. Peter, it's been a pleasure. We thank our guests. Rob's coming back next week, we hope. And we'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0 next week. Next week, James.
Ricochet. Join the conversation.